So like whenever I think of home cooks, especially in San Francisco or just in the Bay Area, really, people that prepare food at home, bring it out and sell it to like an adoring public. I always think of the tamale lady in the Mission District who uh, who actually died uh, not too long ago, Virginia Ramos. And you could be bar hopping in the neighborhood and there was a point in time where you would come out, obviously in need of some kind of like flavorful sustenance. <laughs> And see her selling her goods. You know, there's some things in a city that bring everybody together, that everybody unanimously supports, that people direct you to this space or to this place or to this person, because they're like, if you want to experience the city or if you want to experience wherever you are, you have to go here. And that was part of my um, early experience, like living out here. And that always sticks with me. So whenever I think of like home food pop-ups, I think of her. If you fast forward to now, I'd be curious, so like, what are the things that you're eating? Like what's sticking out in your mind in that way? That's a good question because it's, yes, tamales are very much a part of that culture, but now it's expanded. Recently, for my birthday, actually, someone gave me a box of coconut eclairs from a home Aww. food business yeah, called Tarts de Fibes. And it's this couple that make these really beautiful French pastries that are just restaurant quality. They're both professional chefs. And it's amazing to think that this spectrum of home cooked food encapsulates, right, the tamales mm. that come out of a cooler and these really fancy pastries. It's such an interesting time right now. So with that said, hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. I'm Soleho. So under AB 626, home cooks in California can legally sell up to 30 meals a day or 60 per week from their home kitchens when their counties opt in. That's the important part. They have to opt in. Only one or two counties have actually opted in and have a permit process that you can apply for. As it stands mm. right now during the pandemic, so many people are trying to make a living selling food out of their kitchens, but technically it's not legal, even though it is. It's really confusing, isn't it? Yes, very much so. So to help us figure all of this out, we're talking to Katie Valenzuela, incoming Sacramento City Council member who's worked with State Assembly member Eduardo Garcia on AB 626. We talked to Katie about the origin and iterations of AB 626, all of the drafts that they went through, how this particular policy affects racial and class equity, how the pandemic has made this bill even more urgent, and why being civically engaged matters, especially now. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. So we, this, this is kind of random for our podcast, which is nominally about food, to have someone who is a city council member in Sacramento uh, talk to us on the show. So I guess some background, if you want to talk about your, your experience working on AB 626 and other bills related to it, which regard the, the micro-enterprise home-cooked food sales stuff, uh, how do you relate to that? I was in it from the beginning. I was a consultant working mostly locally in Sacramento and on environmental justice projects. And my friend Khalif reached out to me because he had this exciting new client and he wanted some help. And it was Josephine, um, the company in Oakland who had 
approached him to help them figure out a path to legalizing the sale of homemade food at the state level. And so we first introduced a bill uh, with a assembly member who's no longer in the legislature, Cheryl Brown. And in the first, the minute that bill went into print, got like the full response from the health officers, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Uh, so I helped manage a process. We pulled the bill back and started this year-long almost stakeholder process with environmental health officers from all over the state to basically write the bill that became AB 626. And when we found the new author, Eduardo Garcia, shortly after he introduced the bill, he actually asked me to come work for him on his climate change policies committee. So I got to both work on it outside the legislature and then work on it inside his office um, as we stewarded it through the process. So would you be able to describe the I guess it's first iteration. What was that like? And then what changed after all that consultation? Yeah, well, the first iteration was basically like the Cottage Food Act. We essentially took it as an exception to the Retail Food Code um, You could that you could meet if you met certain criteria. And that was the part that the food officers, the health officers had a problem with. They really wanted to create home kitchens as like a new type of retail food service. And so to bake it into the Retail Food Code rather than making it this exception outside of the code. So we went through this very arduous process because the retail food code is not easy <laughs> for most people. So thankfully, the environmental health officers were working with us because they were able to go through and identify the sections they thought applied. And we were able to negotiate with them to ensure that it stayed attainable because we kept in our front of mind, the immigrants that Josephine was working with, the you know stay-at-home moms, the folks with disabilities who couldn't go out into the workforce, they were our sort of barometer to figure out if something worked. If we thought they could do it, then we would agree. And if we didn't think they could do it, we would negotiate. So it was a lot of back and forth, but it resulted, I think, in what was a really strong bill. So what did you hear from those sorts of clients, like the people who would be participating in all of this did you get any feedback from them or what were you thinking about in terms of just human, the human element of this? Yeah, there was a concurrent kind of process with the legislative work where, I mean, we had the cooks that Josephine worked with, which were great, and they had obviously been doing it. So they were a really great touch point for us to see if they thought something made sense, if they needed a bit more clarity, if they thought something didn't make sense. So we had that sort of group of folks ready to roll. But as we worked on the bill, we were also building the coalition. And so the food policy councils around the state, um, Slow Food, California, folks, all of these great advocates and cooks who were coming to the table as a part of this broad coalition that we also went back to. So every time there was a new proposition put on the table for a requirement for, you know, labeling or something like that. We had a group of folks, a really broad range that we could check with to try to ensure that it made the sense, made as much sense as it could for the most people. I guess in this field, your personal experiences you know, can sometimes shape your political passions, I suppose. And, you know, for you having such like from what I've read, having such like a wide group of uh, of supporters, of friends, um, I wonder like how this like working on this legislation, um, what personal experiences you've had, whether it be, you know, at home cooks, pop ups, like friends that, you know, that might run you know, similar businesses, what's your personal angle to this, like to having a dog in this fight, basically? 
Well, I love good food. <laughs> so that's an obvious one for me. It's just the idea of getting to experience all these great dishes from cooks in my neighborhood just was so exciting. But before I started working with Josephine, I was doing food access work here in Sacramento. So I ran this garden program. Um, we would build free home gardens for folks in community gardens in North and South Sacramento, which for those of you who aren't familiar, you know, a lot of folks just know the capital and they know downtown, but in North and South Sac, we actually have some entrenched racism, you know, in land use policies. We've got a lot of really low income communities of color who are pretty, I mean, literally starved out from a lot of access to food, um, good food and uh, grocery stores and all sorts of things. So we offered these gardens as a way to help both pragmatically like supplement food access challenges, but also just to teach people about food and about growing food and we would use the gardens to bring together gardeners and these sort of, we, I used to call them little clusters, you know, it's like you'd have five gardens that you built within a few blocks of each other and you'd think, hey, you know, let's get these neighbors together and just like start working with them together on gardening and workshops and food stuff and created some really great neighborhood groups that actually still exist today, probably eight years later. Um, but yeah, what we also butted up against though was like a lot of local restrictions on growing. I remember we were gonna build this huge garden at a church in North Sac and had done a whole charrette planning process around it. I mean, everybody was super jazzed and we found out that we couldn't because the zoning code in Sacramento limited where you could grow food. Out of that really birthed the Sacramento Urban Agriculture Coalition that worked on city and county zoning changes um, to allow for growing and selling food all over the city and county. Wow. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I'm really curious about how you see this sort of food policy of letting people sell food that they've made at home in like permanent kitchens and all of that stuff and growing food and selling food at community gardens. How does that gel with racial equity and class equity. Can you talk more about that? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I love that question so much. You literally <laughs> gave me chills when you asked it. I was like, yes. <laughs> I mean, let's just talk about, I mean, you start from the fact that it's already happening. Right. I mean, there's not a community where folks aren't trading food, aren't selling food, aren't doing some form of collective community cooking. And to make that so hard to do legally really presents significant barriers. And especially when you look at access to financing, uh, access to credit. Um, even access to something as simple as a commercial kitchen. I remember when we first started this, the environmental health officers were like, well, just tell everybody to go to a commercial kitchen. And there's literally like one commercial kitchen in all of Sacramento and it's in downtown Sacramento. And it's really hard to book because it's the only one. I'm like, that's ridiculous, you know? And you can't tell someone they have to start a brick and mortar because that's really hard to attain if you're an immigrant, if you have bad credit, if you have prior criminal conviction. I mean, there's so many barriers that present itself specifically to communities of color that make it really hard. And the criminalization that was happening was horrific. I mean, here in Sacramento, simultaneously when we were doing this, Ricardo Lara was also working on his bill on street vendors. And there had been this incident here in Sacramento where you had these Latino vendors who were out every week at the same big church on Sundays selling their food. And the environmental health officers had showed up and were literally like dumping agua fresca into the gutter. They were like taking, they took all of their equipment. It was horrific. And people were standing by like, what are you doing? Like they're just trying to make a living off of pretty like low hazard food. And 
it, it really sparked an outrage and recognition that this was a, a liability for communities of color, especially as immigration enforcement was ticking up, especially, I mean, we know over-criminalization in communities of color is already an issue, and to layer this on top of it, you know, what we had started to see at that point in Alameda County with Josephine and their cooks getting shut down, it just really made this a broader racial social justice issue for us. This is sometimes the only way a new immigrant can really get their foothold and so that they can build a clientele so that they can think about opening a restaurant. And it didn't make sense to me from a very practical level why we would close that door on them. Right. I mean, what are the sorts of justifications that you heard from from folks who are sort of anti this, right, who are thinking in terms of just you know, legalization is the path. And so you should just do it the legal way and not the illegal way. Um, I'm yeah. curious to know what you heard. A lot of times people would say things like, well, these people won't know how to keep their kitchens clean. You know, these people won't you know, be able, like there'll be animals in there. And what if they don't clean things properly? And we saw a lot of implicit bias in what was being talked about. It's, uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone's been into a lot of Mexican grandmothers' kitchens lately, but like they're spotless. <laughs> and I just, you know, it was frustrating because it was something we knew was really prevalent in communities of color and immigrant communities. And the way that the cooks were being talked about just screamed a lot of bias. Like, they wouldn't be able, even if we trained them, because we put in like food handler training requirements, right? That even with the training, somehow that like, quote unquote, these people would get other people sick because they wouldn't be practicing cleanliness in the way that we normally thought of it. And that was persistent throughout the negotiations on the bill. And I always remember my boss at that time, Eduardo, saying, you know, well, if, this, if we weren't talking about brown people, I wonder if this would still be as high of a concern. You know, if I was talking about affluent white mothers staying at home and cooking, would you be this concerned that their kitchens wouldn't be able to be kept clean? It just, it was really frustrating on a lot of levels. Yeah. Wow. I mean, especially considering the context of things we've heard since then. I'm thinking specifically of the moldy jam incident at Squirrel, the very trendy restaurant in LA, which is a, you know, a certified kitchen, a very popular restaurant. And yet, you know, those things happen at those places too. It's not, and it wasn't run by immigrant grandmas or anything like that. They were professional chefs. Yeah. And I mean, we just kept pushing back and saying, you know, we believe that if you require this basic training for everybody, that they are capable of keeping themselves safe. What is the incentive for a cook who's trying to make money off of their food, not to keep their customers safe? It just was right. so, I just, we couldn't get past this question. And we're like, why do you, are you so convinced that someone's like intent intentionally going to let their cat like sit in their mix bowl. <laughs> like, there was literally this photo that they circulated of a kitchen with the cat like up on top of like the stove or something. And I'm like, I just, I don't know. It was so, the, the bias was real. And I think, you know, we had a lot of confidence that people were capable of doing this well and had a lot of incentive to do it right. Um, and then if they didn't do it right, like that was the whole point of environmental health when they come out and do the inspection is to talk it through and make sure that based on your setup, you know what you need to be doing to keep things safe and clean so that you're able to be successful. And we kept all of that in there, even though it's really arduous because we thought it was important. So the fact that those critiques continue to arise was just incredibly frustrating can, can we just talk about the squirrel thing a little bit too though <laughs> we could, yeah. like i i feel I, but maybe like a description do you remember from that reporting how they did because they were talking about like mold and stuff right. right yeah so the thing with squirrel in la is that the 
owner, Jessica Coslow, was selling jam um, out of a secret other kitchen in the restaurant that wasn't licensed. And, (laughs) And there were people, staff members in that other kitchen that were making this jam to be sold retail. And they were told by Jessica that they could just scrape the mold off the top of the jam and just jar it up, which, you know, if you know how mold works, the mold that you see is just what you see. It's the tip of the iceberg. And so to, to say that you can sell jam after scraping the mold off is some like depression era grandma shit, right? (laughs) I mean, it absolutely is. So for, you know, it just makes me think all, all those people that were like running onto IG and posting about that jam and, you know, what they buy from there, but yet, yet they would be terrified to eat from somebody's house. Like, come on, come on, man. I think this brings up a really important point about the idea of trust. You know, the the sort of like contract between customers and people who make food. You trust that the food isn't going to kill you. Right, right. Yeah, that is the basic element of trust (laughs) in these these transactions. Don't kill me. Yeah, but I feel like I've gotten a lot of these home-cooked meals. And as a food critic, I eat a lot of food out. And it's never really been an issue for me. I don't know why, but I think I've just worked in kitchens for so long. I've seen the raunchy shit that happens behind the scenes. And whatever you do at home is probably not worse than what I've seen, like cat-sized rats and staples and dumplings. (laughs) Like things happen, you know, and it wasn't my fault. I want to clarify. I'm not the common denominator here. It's just restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if what it is, is it maybe maybe just naturally our stomachs are more prepared for whatever <laughs> uh, whatever flaws might come with the food be, being prepared in someone else's kitchen. Because, you know, we eat at home all the time. We've eaten at friend's house. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm right with you, Soleil. I don't, I've never been, like, sick off of a home-cooked item that I purchased, you know, that I went to a place and got. But I have, you know, been sick from actual restaurants. There's like a, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting difference. Right. And I think that this feeling that home cooked food is potentially inherently worse or more dangerous flies in the face of the moldy jam incident at Squirrel in LA. Or there's a KFC in New York City near where I lived um, in Manhattan, where it was known to be overrun with rats. Like there was there was footage from when the restaurant was closed and there were just like rats all over this restaurant running on the counters, across the floors, like in the fryer. It was just complete madness. And that was a restaurant. It was licensed. It had inspections, <laughs> apparently. But, you know, this stuff happens. Um, and I would assume if someone lives at home and they're making food out of their home, they're not letting rats fly all over the place. Rats don't fly, but you know what I mean. And I think this should be known. I can't say this for every place, and I don't want to, you know, make it seem like I I know every, you know, home cook that's doing this. But these people are trying to make a living. They're making the best of their situations from home, and they're not going to purposely, from how I see it, I can't imagine they would purposely go out and do something to someone's food. Like, they're trying to build their brand, you know? It's self-sabotaging in many ways. So I, I, that's where, that's part of where my trust is based. Like, I believe that they're doing this stuff, trying to make a living. And I trust that, like, they're going to work hard at it. Right. And if you're curious about what happens to food, even before it hits a kitchen, I have a lot of documentaries I can show you about how sick, nasty it all is. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Solejo, and we're back with Katie Valenzuela. So I want to talk about its current status now. You know, the bill and its cleanup bill have passed and they are law, but what? why aren't people selling food everywhere now? Like, why are places in Alameda County being busted for doing pop-ups? Like, I know that the law has a sort of an active opt-in status, right? So, like, counties have to say, like, we want to do this and we want to have a permitting process and here it is and here's the application. Uh, what? is the holdup. Like, what's your sense of the temperature um, across California for this? Yeah, it's a mixed bag, unfortunately. And that was one of the amendments we took um, on that list that we got from the environmental health regulators was to let counties opt in. And, you know, we thought it was important because it was a new program and obviously different counties have different resources and we didn't want to overwhelm like a small North state county with doing something that they didn't have the capacity to do. So we let the opt in persist and, So it's frustrating that counties like Alameda that have this at such a wide level aren't embracing it. I mean, actually, Sacramento hasn't opted in yet either. It's been real frustrating because literally all you have to do is a resolution that says rather than go out and hunt these people down and shut them down, permit them, um, and it would flip the narrative and make a whole new economic stream for folks. Um, but they still haven't opted in either. And so it's, it's. I think we had hoped that more counties would opt in. Some have, obviously, but um, I think a lot of folks are kind of waiting to see how the counties who opted in fare before they really jump in with both feet because they're still a little nervous about what this means. Um, so that's the best explanation I can get, but that's why it's still happening. And it's just so unfortunate. And I know the Cook Alliance and, and those folks have been doing a lot of work to try to get the word out to cooks to make sure they understand that they, if they don't have a permit that they might get shut down um, and to lobby their county to adopt it. But it's been, it's been pretty slow, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems compounded too by the economic straits of the pandemic, right? And the fires and everything. We're in this moment where so many restaurant professionals have been laid off or underemployed. And like, this is the skill they have, you know, like they can cook and they can sell food and they can post on Instagram about it. It seems like this really impossible situation. And the wait and see approach I'm hearing from a lot of people is so frustrating because the need is so urgent. And it is so like right now, they can't really afford to wait because they have to pay rent. And it's just this... I don't know. I, it's so difficult. No, it's, I mean, I, there are several chefs here locally who are out of work, who are currently selling food, um, you know, either through Facebook or, you know, through different networks. And I warn them every time I see them. I'm like, just so they know that like, technically it's not permitted. And I want to make sure they're careful. One guy was like blasting out stuff on Facebook and I was like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Like, I support your need to make money, but please be careful. Like, this is not technically allowed in Sacramento. Um, But he's a permanent chef. You know, he works in a ranked restaurant in Sacramento, or he did, right? And his food is phenomenal. I will admit to have eaten some (laughs) on more than one occasion. And it's just so unfortunate that we've cut off what could be a really viable path for folks to stay afloat right now. Um, I just, it's unfortunate. And this could be though, but it's not too late. And like, that's part of it is it's like, they could literally do this at their next board meetings if they wanted to. The counties could say, we're gonna let this start happening and environmental health, you gotta figure out how to get this going. And we could start permitting it and we could start seeing the economic benefits of folks being able to generate that revenue for themselves 
in very soon. So I, I always like caveat what I say when I'm so frustrated is also like you could change this next week if you wanted to <laughs> counties, nudge, nudge, um, just do it. <laughs> right. So what's it going to take? Political pressure. I think the hardest part of this pandemic, obviously, in addition to obvious, the obvious things of health and safety is that folks are so overwhelmed. Um, it's been hard sometimes to get people to engage in these sort of like really academic policy discussions about what's permitted, what's not. Um, I mean, even with like the food vendors, like the street vendors, something that we always talked about was like a lot of those vendors are prepping their food at home. Not many of them are prepping their food at a commercial kitchen. So like there's a whole range of scenarios where uh, adopting AB 626 can help boost your local economy um, in real meaningful ways and really keep it afloat during this really hard time we're all in. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can just keep working with folks like the Cook Alliance and build that movement across the state. But it definitely takes everybody just being aware that A, your county needs to opt in. And if they haven't yet, they need to be told um, so that we can really push and then patronize these awesome local businesses. So for listeners who, you know, I've heard a lot of this too, who are frustrated, who want to do something, what would you tell them? Like, what should they do? I think they should definitely reach out to the Cook Alliance. Um, you know, they've just been doing a fabulous job and you just go to cookalliance.org. Um, you know, they have folks who are working to help support folks who help you. I mean, they've got draft resolutions. I mean, we've made it so easy for the counties to adopt. Like literally, you just got to fill in the blank, right? Like put county FX, you know, <laughs> and like change the date and maybe add any additional findings you want to say and boom, you've got a resolution ready to be adopted. So. They have a lot on their website. They'd say what counties have opted in and just good resources and support. And part of what they've done, which is really cool, is identify folks in many counties who are interested. So they can also tap you into folks who are interested locally in helping um, push for policy so that you can work together to try to convince your supervisors to adopt AB 626. I remember like years ago, I would uh, tell like younger people, like my, you know, like my nephews and stuff that they at some point should go sit in on a city council meeting at the very least, you know, just to see, they don't have to like take notes and all the other crap, but just to see how like the city functions because all of these young people, at least, you know, of that like teenage generation right now, um, are very passionate about certain issues, want to become activists of some sort. They're like already acclimated to talking in front of groups, I guess, like through social media and stuff. Can you talk about the importance of, or would you even say there's an importance to it, but like why it would be significant for young people, really young people who want to be active in their community to have an understanding of like city government at a base level, like why that's important later on? Gosh, I think... I used to have this quote on my Facebook and I now I can't find it and I can't remember who said it, but there was this quote I remember reading in grad school that essentially talked about how good it was to work with youth because they haven't yet accepted what they see as normal mm. and how powerful that is when you have someone who so clearly looks at the inequity around them and sees that inequity around them, how powerful that voice and perspective can be in the work and really keeping us, um, you know, not only grounded in what's happening, but keeping our minds open to what's possible. Um, and so for me, it's almost the opposite. Like it's important for them to understand because I want them to engage because I understand how powerful it is when youth do engage. And I've seen that time and time again, just the clarity and 
and values and passion that they can communicate when really given that space to have a meaningful role in the work. It's just, I mean, I was so blessed. My first job out of grad school was actually staffing this parent and student coalition across the state called the Campaign for Quality Education. And it was all run by student run groups. And I remember bringing up this group of youth to advocate in the budget, you know, and spending late night teaching them how the budget worked and helping them prep their stories. And they stood up in this room of, you know, thousand dollar suit lobbyists who had just spent, you know, <laughs> hours like blah blah blahing their way through like a pretty mediocre discussion and they stood up and talked about their siblings you know they stood up and talked about trouble accessing English language classes and their dreams of going to college and how they were worried this was falling away and it just was so powerful and that experience has just reaffirmed for me along with my own experience as a youth advocate that like this is this is what keeps us real. And when you get engaged at that young age, you stay engaged for the rest of your life and you keep that perspective because you understand what's possible. You understand what how the institutions and structures are really holding us back. And you have the tools now to really fight for that. And that's what's going to drive us forward where we need to go. There's a sentiment that's pretty widespread, I think, especially among people who are really online and, and really political, that the pandemic has brought to light so many things that are wrong, right? With the with the, with our systems, our many systems that govern our daily lives. Mm -hmm. And this might be a moment, like an opportune moment to change those things that we took as a priori givens, that we just took as this is just the way things are. Um, can you talk a little bit about what those things might be for you that would be worth dismantling or at least putting into question right now? In the wake of the pandemic, the, the sort of economic uncertainty of that, and in addition, you know, the nationwide protests over police brutality and anti-Black racism, um, sort of, I guess I'm asking about like your sort of grand visions of, of what, what we can change, what, what, what requires rethinking right now. I completely agree with those statements. I think this is a once in a generation moment that we're in, you know, and the last time, you know, we really felt dramatic pain and suffering to this level, you know, we got the new deal, we got, you know, social security and healthcare. I mean, we got, we really set in place institutions that we still lean on today. And that was transformative at that moment. And I think today, I mean, we are surrounded by more, multiple crises happening at the same time, um, from racial justice to the climate crisis to the pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis that now I really hope we can have a conversation about, you know, should healthcare be linked to having a job? You know, should, you know, how do we really take care of students who don't have those supports at home? Because this, you know, when they go back to school, they will still have those same obstacles to overcome when they go home at night. And this has really laid bare the imperative that we've just been sitting on this knowledge we've had for far too long that these inequities existed. And now we're forced to grapple with it. But more than just kind of keeping it afloat for the next few months, like, can we really confront it? And I believe when systems are at their most broken down is when it's the most opportune moment to try to build them back better and not to just go back to normal, but to really question how we do things, what makes sense. And I mean, we could do this at all levels of government. And I think if people aren't actively envisioning what that looks like and playing into that work, whether it's local, state, federal work, we are missing that moment. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to keep pushing and to not let our politicians revert back into what they normally do, because 
that would just be such a devastating loss. I think more than anything, if we come out of this and we haven't embraced this moment to really push for ambitious policy change, new people in office, new policy proposals, I will, I will always regret this. You know, we will talk about this with our grandchildren someday, right? It's like, what is the story we're going to tell that we had this massive crisis and we came out of it with a huge spike in homelessness and all these people with more debt and, you know, all these people who were sick with this mounting credit card debts and we didn't do anything? No, I, I don't accept that. We're kind of in this moment where a lot of people, I think, uh, at least in my peer group, are feeling really hopeless about politics. And they've certainly been hearing a lot about how voting is so important, but then there's all this voter disenfranchisement stuff that's going on. And so it's like, okay, why vote if they're going to throw out my ballot? Um, that sort of stuff, right? So what what keeps you invested in the process? What would you tell people who are feeling really disenfranchised and hopeless right now? Gosh, I so sympathize, I think is the first thing that I'll say. <laughs> I stay focused on the local stuff for both because it's something that's more controllable and it keeps me fueled from a values perspective and a community perspective um, to kind of be able to handle the stuff that's harder for me to control and influence. But really on the other side of this is what is the alternative? You know, if we don't vote, if we don't fight for our vote, if we don't push back every chance we get to explain to people why it's important to vote, like this is a foundational issue. This is something that people have died over. And I know people are so sick of hearing that, but like, really, if we don't fight for this, this is this is oxygen, you know, this is the very blood of our democracy and we have to fight for this. And we're so lucky to live in a state like California that's really working hard um, to ensure that you know your vote will be counted and how to do it and has improved access. And I'm so happy, so, so happy <laughs> that those bills pass and that that plan is in motion. But, you know, we have to maintain these foundational values of what makes us a democracy. Um, even if it's just voting on local stuff <laughs> or state propositions, you know, we have to continue to exercise that muscle because if you don't exercise it, you lose it. And that's, that's not okay. That's not a path we can afford to go down. So um, we have to keep fighting and find hope in whatever you can find hope in because losing it is, is uh, too high of a price to pay. And that's why, I mean, this, this AB 626 stuff and the home cooking stuff has been so galvanizing for a lot of people because it's, it feels achievable you know, um, in, a, in a landscape of things that feels so insurmountable. It the is. home cooking stuff feels real. I mean, imagine what rebuilding could look like in an AB 626 world, right? Like we could, you know, be rebuilding these little neighborhood hubs and systems for finding and buying food from our neighbors. We could have these great experiences where you don't only see your neighbors, but you know them because you've eaten their food and they know you. And it's just the relationships and uh, resiliency we could build locally and how that could permeate up. So I get a lot of excitement on 626 because it seems so small. Like what's the big deal? about going over and getting pho from your neighbor three blocks over. But I see this as such a foundation. We've seen it in the mutual aid networks that have sprung up in the pandemic. Like there's just so much that is to be said about building those connections in the community. And I just think food is, is a way to do that. That's awesome. And thank you so much for your time, Katie. It's been such a pleasure listening to you and talking with you. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So if people want to keep updated on what you're doing, um, where can they find that information? 
uh, yeah, I still have all of my campaign stuff active because I don't get sworn in until December. So they can go to katie4council.com with the number four in there and you can see my socials are linked and um, there's a lot there. And then if people want, they really should follow Cook Alliance. They're on Facebook and they have a website, cookalliance.org um, to plug into the 626 work and start rebuilding from, you know, thinner on up. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. I've been thinking about this issue of policy and individual action for a long time. And it's rare that I get to ask an actual politician what they think about this stuff of just like, what can people do? And I realize that it's not necessarily the best question to ask. I actually wrote about this in a newsletter recently about food systems and about how buying ethically at the grocery store is like the least you can do. And it also, because it doesn't really work, because all the bad stuff has already happened where, you know, the, the uh. cows have already been killed. The shrimp have already been uh, harvested by enslaved fishermen. It's kind of a weird thing. Right. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing yeah. you can do. I mean, do you think uh, like as part of it, people being more educated about, I guess, the the beginning and endpoints of issues that they're trying to address, I guess, through their purchasing power, maybe? I don't know. Like, is it just, should we encourage people to study more, read more, <laughs> you know, like become educated a little bit more than they might want to, I guess? Well, the tiger mom in me says, yes, you should always study more. But I think that when you become too informed, you become paralyzed, right? Like there's Ooh, so that's much. that's a good point. I think recently, I think when Donald Trump got COVID, people were, there was this joke on Twitter about how like there's just news inflation and journalists are just carrying around tons of headlines and wheelbarrows and like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all of it is just yeah. doesn't amount to a loaf of bread because there's just too much. Yeah. I think that's the same thing for knowing about big issues, right? Knowing about climate change, knowing about enslavement in the making of cell phones. It's just like, okay, like now what? Right. So I think the really good thing about talking with people like Katie Valenzuela is that these are people who know that there are things to be done. Right. Like there are organizations that they've worked for or that they are abetting and aiding um, that are working on these systemic problems. Right. Like we have the United Food Workers who are working on better labor conditions in the ag fields of California. Right. There are tons of like labor organizations and nonprofits that are helping and making this work and you can help them in ways beyond buying the right shrimp you know yeah for sure and i think the other good thing about having like discussions like this is that when you talk to a politician who is new to the game and really energetic about the difference that you know they want to make they also remind you of how lengthy the process toward change mm. is in politics, mm -hmm. like it has to be an ongoing, persistent dialogue. And having that reminder is good, you know, because I think people can get frustrated if they don't see something change immediately. But if you have someone who you can see as like your uh, your social counterpart, I suppose, you know, if they weren't in politics, you would be friends with them and they tell you to be patient. Uh, that's important. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, be patient, but don't be complacent. There you go. And also vote. Yeah, go vote. <laughs> Not only vote, <laughs> but really take the lead from labor organizations and other advocates for how you can help in real time. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to Katie Valenzuela for being in conversation with us. 
You can read the transcript of our full interview at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food life or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.